How many of you have you ever flown in an airplane? Airplane. Okay, let's assume that you have flown on a big plane and you've flown into a big city, Dallas, Houston, somewhere. If your pilot is, is a great pilot, and he should be if he's flying a big plane, and he's well-trained, instrument-trained, he can drive, he can fly that plane if it's dark or if the weather's bad. As he's approaching that airport, we'll say Dallas, the control tower where the air traffic controllers are working is absolutely paramount to your life. Did you know that? You're asleep or you're doing something else, but no matter how good your pilot is, he's got to listen to the people in that tower because they're going, no matter how good he is, they're going to control him or not control him, him or her. They have a perspective. They see everything. They see all the flights that are coming in at that time, all the flights that are going to be leaving at that time, all the flights that are going to be coming in and leaving in the next five to ten minutes. They have a perspective even that the best pilot does not have. And, and for the, the safety of you and that pilot and a lot of other people, they need to be tuned in to the control tower and the control tower's perspective, and that's the way to have a happy ending to your flight. This morning, we're going to talk about your control tower, not one at an airport, but the one that's controlling your life. We're in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, and we're in a series about your calling. And this is going to tie into what God has left you here and your purpose and, and your reason for being here on this earth. And I want to begin with this. And man, everything, I, I hope every sermon speaks to you, whether you're five years old or you're 105. But, but man, some of this this morning is just so, for the, for the non-Christian, this is what Christian is about. For the Christian, this is how we are supposed to be. So let's, let's begin with the question, who or what is controlling you? Something is controlling you. You may not even be conscious of it. You may not even be aware of it, but something controls you. For many of us, what controls us is self, S-E-L-F, what we see in the mirror. We do what we want to do. We're controlled by our ego, our pride, our desires, we, we are controlled by self. Others of us, we're controlled by money, the pursuit of money. We're controlled by con- the pursuit of power and control and being able to dominate things. Maybe it's drugs, drugs and alcohol, the sex. Those things are very controlling on our lives too. But here's what I'm going to tell you. If you're not a Christian, you need to become one this morning. If you are, Jesus Christ is who needs to be controlling you. In fact, if you are a Christian, a Christian should be, and at least at some time, has been controlled by Christ. In verse 14, it begins and it says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, the love of Christ, we don't know here if it's talking about, it's probably talking about both, Christ's love for us controls us. Our love for Christ controls us. The grammar would lend itself either way. So, in other words, if you have a relationship with God and becoming a Christian is about surrendering your life and being controlled by Jesus, you, you will be controlled by the love of Jesus, his love for you, your love for him. That word in your Bible, control, is a great word if you're taking notes. It means to hold something in line. It means to constrain and not like hold back, but to keep you on target, to keep you marching or driving down the right way. You know, when you're on the interstate and there's barriers on each side of the lane, that's trying to tell you don't get over out that you're going to get in trouble 
One, you run in the barriers, you're going to get in trouble. But on what's on the other side of that lane is a problem. The, the love of Christ directs our life. It, it influences our life. In the Bible, it talks about... It talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God in spirit. It's the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And when you become a Christian, he lives in you. And the Bible says that you should be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And when it talks about being filled with the Spirit, how many of you have heard that term filled with the Spirit before? You've heard that. That's not so much a mystical thing as it's a practical thing. Filled is synonymous with being controlled. Be filled with the Spirit is is to let the Spirit control your life. In Ephesians 5, it says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. None of you have ever been drunk before, so I'm going to tell you what he means by that. Okay, you've seen somebody drunk. How many of you ever seen a drunk before? A drunk is controlled by alcohol. They're controlled by it. And what he says in that passage is so neat. As the drunk is controlled by alcohol, don't be controlled by alcohol. You be controlled and filled, not controlled by Budweiser or Boone's Farm or whatever. You be controlled and filled by the Holy Spirit. Like a drunk's controlled by alcohol, if you're a Christ follower, you are to be controlled by the Spirit of God. Listen, as a Christian, this this affects everything in your life. You're supposed to be controlled by by the Holy Spirit, by Jesus Christ. The second part of this is that the Christian lives for Jesus first. It just makes sense. Listen, if the Holy Spirit, if Jesus is controlling you, something is directing your life. Something determines how you spend your money and your time and your priorities and your focus. It's supposed to be Jesus. How you treat people this morning, Jesus. And if Jesus is controlling you, it just rolls in that he should be first. Look in verse 15. It says, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for their sake, but for him who died and who was raised for our sake. The word live there literally means warm. It means while you are physically alive. Here's what he says. You're not a Christian. Becoming a Christian is surrendering your life to Christ. It's giving up control. The hard thing is it's daily giving up control. Wouldn't you agree with that? That's hard, isn't it? Bible tells us we're to be a living sacrifice. The only problem with a living sacrifice is it crawls off the altar, doesn't it? He says, I want to control you. Boy, when I control you, how things will be different. I want to be number one in your life. Something is number one in your life. For many of us, it's just us. It's just our ego. It's just what we want. Or again, maybe it's a pursuit of a thousand things. Jesus says, let me be. I should be number one in your life. I died for you. I rose for you. I have this right. I have this authority. Listen, Jesus being Lord means he's your boss. It means he's your boss. And and this is just a side caveat. It's a different sermon altogether. But when you make a choice as a non-Christian, or you make that choice fresh this morning to let Jesus control you and to put him first, let me tell you, that's the absolute best thing you can do for your life. You're taking notes. These aren't on the screen. Matthew six thirty three. It says, seek the kingdom of God and Jesus' way first and everything else then will fall in place. Putting God first, everything falls in place. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, the devil came to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come to give you life and life abundantly. When you let Jesus control you, different sermon, it's the absolute best life. But here's the thought this morning. When Jesus controls you, it shapes how you do life. It changes your focus. It changes your priorities. 
And here's something that's going to change right off the bat. Christians should view all people the way Jesus does. It changes our perspective. If you are a Christ follower today, how you view people should be different than how you viewed people before you were saved. It should be different than how the world views people. Dr. Richard Land is a president of a Baptist seminary in North Carolina. He was at one time the chairman or whatever they call it for the Religious and Ethics Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's a pretty smart dude. He has a Ph.D. from, I believe it's either Cambridge or Oxford in ethics. And, and Dr. Land said this, after God, the second most important question is, who are people? What is a human being? When does life start? Why do people matter? Do people matter? And I, I absolutely believe that's true. How you view people determines everything about how you'll do life with people. Absolutely it does. And I love what he says in this passage. Look in verse 16. From now on, somebody, after he's been saved, for many of you as Christians, maybe it's a re-jump this morning. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus this way no longer. Paul said, like many of us, before I was a Christian, we, 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 we held Christ in low regard and low esteem. But he said, I got saved, and he, my view of Jesus changed, and my view of people changed. When he talks about regarding people according to the flesh, he's talking about viewing people as the world views people. That word regard in the Scripture, we regard no one according to the flesh, it's your physical sight, or it's your perception. It's, it's seeing people with a human understanding and human eyes and human thinking. And here's what God said through Paul. When I found Christ, and if you found Christ, and if you'll find him today, how you look at people is never the same. See, some of you this morning are Christians, but man, your view, how you view and treat people is horrible. And it comes back to your perspective of people after your relationship to Christ. And he says, I want your view of people not to be like it used to be. You don't look at people and make judgments based on their skin color. You don't look at people and make judgment on who their mom and daddy is. You don't look at people. They got money and they don't have money. They're a great athlete. They're not a good athlete. They're poor. They're dumb. That's how the world looks at people. You don't look at people like, well, I'm a Democrat and they're Republican, so they're an idiot. Or I'm a Republican and they're a Democrat. They're an idiot. My opinion, there's idiots in all camps. Amen? There's even one here, First Baptist. I have no idea who it is, but there's somebody's got to be, right? It's me. Okay. See, so, I'm going to stop. Some of you need to get saved this morning. You know why? Because the way you treat and view people, you don't know Christ. You don't know Christ. Read First John when you get home. But he tells us this, when we become a Christian, I think this is a constant push of our heart. We need to view people as Jesus. How does Jesus view people? I want to give you some things real quick this morning. That you, this way you're supposed to view them. It'll change your life. It'll change how you do life. Number one, everybody is created in the image of God. You see, when, when Jesus looks at, at every person... He sees someone created in his own image. Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in the image of a monkey. In the image of monkey, he created man. Male and female, he created them like monkeys. Is that what it says, Mary? That's not what it says, Mary. You ain't a monkey. Amen? And neither is anybody else. 
Every single person you see is created in the image of God. How's that change how you view people? Should. Here's number two. He loves everybody. He loves everyone. Let's pause for a second. Do you have a problem loving everyone like you should? Raise your hand or you have a problem lying. I mean, everybody you see, everybody in your past, it's like, oh, when I think of them, it's just all ice cream and roses. No. John 3.16, this helps us, though. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So loved the world, the sum total of individuals. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through. And three times he used that word world in one verse, some total of individuals. See, God looks at every person as someone he loves. He created and he loves. How will that change your game if you start looking at people that way? That, listen, that doesn't mean that you don't think that they're, they got issues. They may need therapy. They may need to find a new job. They may need to be grounded. Whatever it is. But it changes the game when you look at everybody as a creation of God and somebody he loves. Here's the third thing. Jesus looks at people as somebody he died for. He died for everybody. Here's the heartbeat of the passage. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, that therefore all have died is a little confusing. Is he talking about all will die physically? We've all died as a Christian. You die to yourself. It could be, it can be both of those, obviously. Verse 15, and he says it again, and he died for all. Just in just in, in a sentence, three times he uses the word all. If you're taking notes, Bible words are important. What does the word all mean? It means all. <laughs> it means everyone. I love this. It means the individual within the totality are the totality of individuals. When Jesus says, for all have sinned, you know what he means? All have sinned. When he says he died for all, you know what he means? He died for all. There's a ton of scriptures I can give you. I'm going to give you two. 1 Timothy 2, 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 1 John 2, 2. It's a wonderful verse. 1 John 2, 2, it says he is the propitiation. That's a big word for the appeasing, atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for my sins, but also for the sins of the whole world, the sum total of individuals. I mentioned Charles Swindoll, Dr. Swindoll, two weeks ago in a sermon with something he had said. I want to mention him again. If you don't know who he is, he's a prolific Bible scholar, writer, was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for 10 years. He's in his 80s. He's still pastoring in Dallas. And, and he talked about the belief that Jesus didn't die for everyone. And he just simply said that's not in the Bible. The Bible teaches Jesus died for everyone. Guys, I want to tell you, it changes the game. When you look at everybody and you say, Jesus died for them. I don't like the way they treat me. That's okay, but he died for them. I wish he'd smack them upside the head with some holy justice. Amen. Read the Old Testament. He can do it. But he died for them. Now, some of you might go, well, wait a second. If Jesus died for everybody, doesn't that mean everybody will automatically be saved? That's called universalism. The Bible does not teach that at all either. Here's a a story that I think helps us understand the, the extent of the offer, but what you have to do for the offer to be good for you. In the 1970s, Jimmy Carter was president. 
I was just a toddler, so I don't remember much about that. But during his presidency, he he offered a blanket amnesty. That's basically a get-out-of-jail card free to all the veterans who had, or not veterans, the people who avoided the Vietnam War, which was from the 60s and early 70s. Some people just left our country. They went to Canada. They went to other countries. They were drafted. They ignored the draft. That's illegal, by the way. You go to prison for that. And Carter said, everybody who evaded the draft has a get-out-of-jail card free. You can come home. It's good for you. And many came home. Many didn't. Some had died. Some maybe didn't hear about it. Others just didn't come home. See, it was good for everybody, but it was only actually useful for those who what? Who accepted it. It's the same way with the with the cross. Folks, when you think about yourself, Jesus died for you. He was the substitute that died in your place, and he was the substitute that died for everybody. And that brings us to the fourth way Jesus views people. He sees everyone as someone he wants to save. He wants everyone to be saved. I think verse 15 rings that, and he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for their sake, he died and was raised. Second Peter 3, 9 is a wonderful verse. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Talking about the second coming, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards even you, not wanting anybody to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I want to tell you some great news this morning. Some of you are in here and you don't know Christ. I can look at you this morning from the Scripture and say, Jesus died for you, and he wants to save you this morning. Isn't that wonderful? And how it will change your perspective if you started looking at people, not by their race or their ethnicity or who their mom and dad or or whatever filters you're using, and you would look at them as people that Jesus died for and that he wants to say perspective is everything. How many of you ever heard of D-Day? D-Day was June the 6th, 1944. A turning point in World War II. I'm not telling you, especially if you're young, to go home and watch this movie without parental. Uh, but but uh, Saving Private Ryan. Did any of you ever see that? I, I don't know what it's rated. I, I, it is brutal. It is brutal, the very first of it especially. And I've had veterans tell me that's what D-Day was like when they took the beat. It was horrible. And on the 50th anniversary of D-Day, which was June the 6th, 1994, they were having a big celebration in France. That's the, the Americans' allies were taken, coming in to fight the Nazis and to push them out of France and that part of Europe. It's turning point of the war. And so they interviewed, strangely, back-to-back, Two soldiers whose perspectives were so different. One was a Marine who was in the assault from on Omaha Beach. What you saw him save at Priving Ryan, that's exactly what he said. It was horrible. He said, it was a miracle of God that I survived. He said, as I laid on that beach that day watching people around me dying, he said, we're going to lose this battle and we're going to lose the war. They interviewed a guy right after him, and, and this had to be a God thing almost because we ended up winning the war and winning that battle. This guy was an Army reconnaissance pilot. He was flying over that area at the same time. He flew over the beach. He said, man, I saw the carnage on the beach, but I saw the Marines were, and, and the soldiers' armory were making some headway. 
And then I was able to fly farther back into France and I could see where the paratroopers the night before had landed and they were fighting the Germans and they were making headway and the Navy was shooting bombs from the sea and they were making headway. And he said, I looked at that day and I said, we're going to win the battle and we are going to win the war. Perspective is everything. Start seeing people as God sees people. First Baptist, that's our call as a church. To see people as God sees people. And, and let me bring this together, how this all goes with, with this passage of Scripture. When we are controlled by Christ and see people as He does, we will be on life. We'll bring our life to be on mission to bring people to Christ. Our life will be on mission to bring people to Christ. See, all this goes together. It's all in the, in the context. I read this this week. You, you can tell me. Tell me after church. Email me if you think this is true. A Christian writer was talking about what's wrong with Christians? Why, why do Christians not want to bring people to Jesus? Why do, why do churches, why are so many churches flat? 80, 90% of churches in America are declining. They're, they're, they're flat. They're not doing well. Why? Here's what he said. Most professing Christians are just as selfish and self-protective as people who aren't Christians. Man, what would happen? What would happen if our perspective changed? Our control center and our control tower changed. I want to read verse 14 again. For the love of Christ controls us. We could put in there it should control us. Because Christ died for all. Now go down to verse 20, which is kind of a heartbeat of this series. We are, we are Christ ambassadors. As though God was making his appeal through us, we beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Folks, I want to tell you, when Jesus has control of you and you have his perspective, you're going to want to bring as many people to him as you can. I mentioned an article from Relevant Magazine last week, and it lists five reasons Christians don't witness. I mentioned two last week. Here was a third one. The reason that we don't invite people to church, invite people to Jesus, share our faith, is we just don't care. Wow. People are dying and going to hell. We so care. We're busy. We've got our own problems. Man, I'm telling you, when Christ controls you and your perspective of people is his perspective of people, there's no way you're not going to want to be on mission to bring others to him. Back in February of 2002, in Michigan, a young lady named Valerie took her 63-year-old grandfather, shoved him out of a door, upper Michigan, into the snow, got on top of him and started pounding him with snow. That's got to be like geezer abuse, isn't it? I mean... I could see my granddaughter Riley doing that to me, but uh, that's not a positive thing, is it? Here's, here's part of the story that you need to know. He had just lit a kerosene, a kerosene stove in the house, and it exploded. He was covered in flames. She said the second that happened, she, you know, she just froze because you, you're not expecting that. And she said, then I, I knew I love this man. And he's going to die. And he's screaming and he's hollering. And he's on fire. She said, I did whatever I had to. I, I pushed him outside 
into the snow. I got on top of him and started packing him down with snow to put the fire out. She said he got up, and he's in, a, he's in shock. He goes and gets the fire extinguisher and puts the, fo- the fire out. And then she said, I rode with him in the ambulance of the hospital screaming all the way. And he said later, he goes, I don't know what hell was like, but I felt like I was there. The neat part of the story is that he ended up after some therapy, obviously. He, he was okay. And I'm going to paraphrase and kind of give our thoughts to what Valerie said later. She said, when you see someone you love in a terrible spot, your love for that person takes over. Wouldn't you agree? I knew he was in bad shape, and I love him. My perspective, my heart is love. And I was willing to do anything I could to save him. Anything I could to save him. I wonder what would happen if half the people in this room who profess to be Christians got controlled by Jesus. And you went to work tomorrow, and instead of looking at somebody as a number or a producer, and I know people have to do well or they don't keep a job, and you didn't look at somebody just as a, a, another person in your classroom, but you looked at people from a God perspective. And the love of Jesus, if it really is in you, has control of you. Listen, if this is true, you'll spend the rest of your life helping as many people as you can come to Jesus. Will it be true of you? Let's pray.